Hello, my name is Seth Han. Would you please stand with me as we read scripture? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Seth. Good morning, everybody. So welcome to Disciples Church. I don't think anybody said that. Jonathan, did you say welcome to Disciples Church? He did. Welcome again to Disciples Church. Um, my name is Dave Hahn, uh, for those of you who don't know me, and it is my huge privilege and thrill to be able to open God's word with you this morning. So just a few days ago, we celebrated another Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to live the life that we could not live to die the death that we should have died and to give us eternal life. The thing that we most desperately needed but could never earn. And in just a few days, we'll step into a new year, 2020. And it's right around this time of year between Christmas and New Year's Day that many of us take stock of the year that was and we ponder our hopes and dreams for the year to come, oftentimes in the form of resolutions. Personally, I'm not much of a New Year's resolution guy, though there is much of who I am that needs to change. Here's a real quick one. When I got up this morning, I thought this was black and it's navy blue. So I'm not good at determining the difference between black and navy blue. There are other things though that I need to grow in, things that I'm resolved to be better about every day. And here's a real thing that I struggle with, apart from the blue and black thing. I am blunt and honest. There's chuckles in the front row here because these are the people that know me the best and know it to be true. Just ask them if you're curious as to whether or not that's true. Oftentimes, people do appreciate my straightforward approach and other times, honestly, it's damaging and it's hurtful. And therein lies the struggle. I think most people, once they get to know me, know that I mean well. Um, I think that they understand and come to understand anyway that it's born of love. But in my telling of the truth, I can honestly come off as harsh. And my friends have coined a phrase for this aspect of my personality. They call it the Big Dave hug. Uh-oh, they say. I don't want Dave wrapping his big loving arms around me and telling me truth might hurt, but 
I know well, my friends, that truth without grace can do damage and that imbalance mischaracterizes God. One of the most incredible things about the character and the nature of Jesus Christ is found in John chapter 1. It reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, not either or. We need both in our life if we want to reflect Christ. And most of us, honestly, probably ebb too far to one side or the other. Personally, as I've shared, I know how to do truth really well. That's not a problem for me. But I need to be better at grace. Grace people, if you want to be able to identify where you are on on the coin, grace people are most concerned with being loved. Even if it means neglecting the truth. Truth people are most concerned with being right even if it means people don't like them. As one author put it, something is wrong if everyone hates you, and something is probably just as wrong if everyone loves you. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about that duality. There were those who loved him, and there were those who hated him, because he spoke truth that people didn't want to hear. So the passage that we're in today, as Seth read, is from the book of Colossians. And Colossae is a place where we find a people in which God's grace and truth was out of balance. The people of that region were under attack from false teachers. The specifics are not clear, but traditionally these false teachers were thought to be Gnostics. People who believed that the physical was inferior to the spiritual, who denied the fullness and the deity of Christ, who taught that there was more to be had than Christ himself, and they demanded works in addition to the finished work of Christ. And Paul, as he does, a bit of a truth teller himself, addressed these issues head on. Focusing on the person and the works of Christ and the Christian's identity in him. In the first chapter and a half of this letter, Paul pleads with the Colossians, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what is true. Then at the beginning of our passage today, in verse 16, we see the word, therefore. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. As one of my friends and pastors would say, When you see the word therefore, you need to know what it is there for. And we find our answer to this therefore in the first 15 verses of chapter 2. In verses 1 through 15, the word of God lets the people of Colossae and you and I know your debt of sin has been nailed to the cross, therefore let no one judge you. You have been buried and raised with Christ, therefore... Let no one judge you. The fullness of Christ is within you. Therefore, let no one judge you. We all hate feeling like we're being judged, don't we? Nothing draws out righteous indignation or a sense of injustice, like someone calling us out. How dare they? Who do you think you are, God? What do you, who, do you, who are you to judge? And we 
turn the tables on that person in our defense or we shift blame to someone or something else for that wrong. I wonder, my friends, if judgment is a word, an idea that's lost a little bit of its meaning because we forget who the one true judge is. Because we so often see judgment used imperfectly with one another. A judgment without grace and devoid of truth. Even within the church, where control and condemnation push grace and truth out of the driver's seat. Friends, I think our view of judgment would be different if we truly believed that the world has already been judged. That the world already stands condemned by a good, perfect, and just God who sent his son to save it and he doesn't need our help. Listen to Jesus' words in John 3, a famous verse to begin with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And still, according to Scripture, judgment does have a place in the life of a believer. But the judgment that we exercise as believers is different than the judgment of God. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, wrote, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This chapter, 1 Corinthians, says that as members of the church, we are to judge those within the church. For what have we to do with judging outsiders, Paul wrote? God judges those outside. And according to the word of God in these verses, the judgment that we as believers are called to is unto a brother or sister in Christ who is living in habitual or unrepentant sin living outside of their new identity in Christ and repentance, restoration, and reconciliation, not condemnation, needs to be the goal. We get a clearer picture of this idea in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul has learned that a member of the church of Corinth is living in sexual sin, gladly so. And in response, Paul writes this to the rest of the church. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, that he might be saved. Friends, what God's word say, is saying here is really remarkable. What it's saying is that being excluded from the fellowship of believers or experiencing the worst of trials at the hands of Satan is far better 
than eternal separation from God. Being excluded from the body of believers, experiencing all matter of trials is far better than being excluded and being separated from God for all of eternity. That it is worth hitting bottom and experiencing all manner of trials if in so doing one turns toward God and is saved from hell. That is a radical idea. Do you realize, my friends, that Satan, that God is in control of even Satan? That Satan and God are not equals. And that sometimes God uses Satan to save and to sanctify his people. That God uses Satan to save and sanctify his people. Through Satan, God brought Job to his knees and he prospered him. Do you know that Satan had to ask for permission? And he brought Paul to the point where he could rejoice in and through his many trials. Friends, for the lost, salvation and reconciliation is what God is after at any cost. And restoration and sanctification is what God desires for all who believe. That is why Christ came. That is why he died. It is Christ's cross where God cries out, there is no cost too great where the rescue of the lost and restoration of the saved are the prize. We need to trust God's spirit to convict the lost of sin and to convince the saved of righteousness to call them home. So practically speaking then, what does judgment look like for we who love and follow Jesus? If we as the church are supposed to judge, what does that look like? First, our judgment should flow from our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters. Like Christ, love is our motivator. Two, the judgment of another requires an established relationship. We need to earn the right to speak into someone else's life. Through time, through presence, through trust, we gain an invitation to sit down with a brother and sister and say hard things. Third, in our judgment, we always assume the best. Recognizing that we don't know the whole story, that we don't know the content of that other person's heart. We do not begin with accusation. Rather, we ask questions and we seek to understand. Finally, we do not rejoice in one's turning towards sin and away from Christ. Someone refusing Christ and living in willful disobedience should break our hearts. So in the coming year, would you ask God to grow in you a heart for reconciliation? not just for the lost, but for your struggling brothers and sisters in Christ. That he would remind you of the life-giving truth and abundant grace given to you in Christ. 
and then to extend those same things to others indiscriminately. Friends, you and I have been sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world, not sit in judgment of it. And the ability and the desire to share the gospel is from God. Even more so, the results are from God. The good news we've been sent to proclaim centers itself around a cross. We have to remember that. And it is at this very cross that the judgment of God and the love of God is most clearly seen in one person and in one act. We see the judgment of God and the unbelievable love of God. For the non-believer, condemnation and judgment will remain. But for the believer, there is forgiveness once and for all. As Pastor Tim Keller said, in Christ, our judgment day moves from a day in the future to a day in the past. Do you know that as believers in Christ, you are not condemned? And you have been judged already? And you have been found guilty? And Christ took the punishment. So there is no more judgment for you. Continuing in verse 16 of Colossians 2, Paul puts a finer point on the kind of judgment we ought not receive from others. Against judgment that surrounds adherence to old covenant laws or man-made religions, it reads, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. See, Colossae had false teachers demanding obedience to them, veiled as obedience to God. And these false teachers encourage the exclusion of those who would not obey, essentially ignoring the new covenant that Christ had established, where everything, everything is good and permissible. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It reads, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 24 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. Continuing in verse 29 and 33 of that same chapter, it reads, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Consider what we have heard in these three verses. Sin comes from within, not from without. It's our hearts that are wicked. God has made all things good. Second, there are things that are helpful and build us up. And there are things that do not. 
And by God's grace and by his spirit, we need to know the difference. Third, in all we do, our gratitude and glory is what God is after. His glory is what he is after. Our gratitude is what he is after. Do all to the glory of God. Do you know what the Greek word for all is in that verse? All. Fourth, we need to be willing to lay aside our own freedoms for others. For instance, and there's a bunch of these. If someone that you know struggles with alcoholism and you're hanging out with them, have a soda. Give up your right for their sake. Finally, and very importantly, the word of God tells us that the bulk of what we judge each other for are matters of conscience. Personal, spirit-led conviction. And as believers, we are to listen to our consciences, be obedient to scripture, and to be led by God's spirit. And my friends, you and I are not the Holy Spirit. God has not asked us to put rails around the lives of others. God has not equipped us to convict or to change anyone. He has commanded us to pray for them, to encourage them, to be an example unto them, and to point them to Jesus. And we can trust that God has written his laws on the hearts of his children. Because let's be honest, most people know when they're doing something wrong. They don't need our help. Sinfulness is usually a matter of obedience before it's a matter of ignorance. So don't be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Point them to Jesus. You see, God is a relentless pursuer of the wayward and the lost and the disobedient. And we can trust that he will change and he will transform the lives of all that he calls his own. Though maybe not when and maybe not how we would like. Never happens fast enough, does it? It never happens the way we want it to, does it? The false teachers in Colossae judged and excluded others based on what they ate, what they drank, what they celebrated, and how they worshipped God. And the church word for that is legalism. Legalism, as one pastor defined it, is twofold. First, to treat biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor to treat biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. Second definition of legalism. To establish specific requirements of behavior beyond the teaching of scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the full family of God. 
teachings beyond that of scripture and making adherence to them the means by which people can participate. So having heard those definitions, let me ask you a question. Is your life marked by legalism? Are you obsessed with getting others to obey and follow rules more than you're obsessed with getting someone to know and love Jesus? Are you paying more attention to what you see in the lives of others than you are the wicked desires of your own heart? Or maybe you're living under the weight of legalism. It's probably safe to say that many of you have had burdens laid upon you by churches, by pastors, by friends, by family, all in the name of Christ. And your relationship with God in part is based on a fear of punishment. You think more about what you've done or have left undone than you do reflecting on and trusting in what Christ has done in you and for you. And you walk in guilt and shame, not the love and acceptance that is yours in Christ. Please listen. If any of that is where you are today, it is not Christ or his gospel in whom you have believed but your own ability to be good and be righteous. And Christ came to set you and I free. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, we misunderstand the gospel whenever we believe that the things that we participate in or abstain from will lead to our salvation or bring a greater measure of God's love and acceptance. Do you believe that there are things that you're doing or not doing that will cause God to love you more or less? Do you believe that there is something that you need yet to do in order to truly be saved or to be saved again? It is not the gospel that you believe. My friends, you aren't beloved by God because you said a certain prayer or because you walked an aisle. Jesus loved you and saved you before you uttered one word or took one step. You aren't beloved by God because you participate in Christian activity. Circumcision, baptism, communion, child dedication, CCD, catechism, Bible studies, or community groups. Good and right things to be sure if they cause us to know, love, and follow Jesus more deeply. And you aren't beloved by God based on whether or not you drink alcohol. Let your kids trick or treat. Go see rated R movies. Listen to music that's not on K-Love. Hang out with non-Christians. Homeschool your kids. Private school your kids. Public school your kids. Brothers and sisters, why do we beat ourselves and each other up over non-essential things in which God has granted us freedom? Why? Listen, 
Traditions and rituals and remembrances and self-discipline can be good and right and meaningful. But personal conviction around those things cannot become doctrine. Do you hear? They cannot become doctrine. And they can't become a hammer in our hands with which we beat each other up. No, of course, God's word is not speaking out against rituals or remembrances. It is saying that those things are shadows. And shadows can be powerful things, but they cannot save anyone. And they do not affect God's love for anyone. And they will not transform anyone's heart or make them new. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, if the pictures and shadows we love do not point to Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and his spirit in you, they are worthless. What's the point? Listen to verses 17 and 18 of Colossians 2. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This is legalism masquerading as humility, my friends. And we need to be cautious of asceticism. Asceticism being those who practice extreme self-discipline and self-denial. Let no one's personal convictions become law for you. And we need to be cautious of celestial worship, angels, saints, or any other heavenly creature. There is no other mediator between us and God. Christ alone is our high priest. Christ alone is our advocate. And finally, we need to be cautious of those who claim to have been given visions and special gifts, specifically if those gifts and visions make much of them, not Christ. The gifts God's Spirit gives are for the building up and the encouragement of the church to bring Him glory, not His creation. Be cautious of anything or anyone that seeks the place of Christ. That's what made the false teachers in Colossae so dangerous. It is Jesus Christ who is transcendent and above all things. And the cross of Christ cries out, you have nothing to boast in. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But we will and we should boast in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And legalism and self-righteousness never deliver on their promises. Legalism leads to bondage, not freedom. To pride, not humility. It leads to death, not life. It leads to a frustration in our inability to obey rather than a growing desire to obey. And that is not what Christ died to give to us. He came to rescue us from those things.
As one pastor put it, there are far more many souls in hell because of the sin of legalism than because of any sin the flesh may indulge in. That's where legalism leads. Because legalism puts the weight of salvation on the sinner and no one but Christ can bear that weight. So ask yourself today, am I known more for what I'm against or who I am for? What is your life marked by? Jesus is and must remain the center point and substance of our lives. And according to verse 19, Jesus must also be and is the head of the church. It reads, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. God is after our joy. God is after our freedom and our growing up in him. Where Christ is the head, where we are the body, and our only hope, our only hope for spiritual growth is from God and through Christ. That's how you grow through abiding in him, not regulations. May we never, ever be hindered by laws and rules that we cannot obey and that ultimately lead to death. Now as Christians, we have indeed died, but we have died to the law and to its regulations. But to God in Christ, we have never been more alive. Listen to verses 20 through 21. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. As followers of Christ, we are no longer under the law, and so we no longer stand condemned. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament and countless more man-made ones. And according to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18, each law was fulfilled and accomplished in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He lived them perfectly. As one commentator put it, it would be preposterous indeed for those who had reaped the benefit of Christ's victory that's you and I, to put themselves voluntarily under the control of the powers which Christ himself had conquered. Why, if we have been given victory, would our, we put ourselves voluntarily under the control of powers that Christ conquered? We have died with Christ, my friends, and we have been raised with Christ. That's the picture of baptism. And Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. This is the cry of every believer. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Life in Christ is the substance. All else are shadows. According to verses 22 through 23, to finish up, there are four big problems with ignoring the substance of Christ and replacing it with the shadows of men. 
Verse 22 reads, these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So here is the first problem according to these two verses. The world is perishing. So all that we indulge in or refrain from will cease to be. So how can we find our hope in it? That which we abstain from or partake in, how can those things be our hope? The kingdom of God, my friends, of which Christ is king, is the only thing that's eternal. The second problem, according to these verses, is that we often choose to obey man rather than God. But man is sinful and after his own power and glory. Whereas God is all loving, he is all powerful, and he is after our joy in him. It is God that we need to first obey. The third problem, we cannot justify or fix ourselves. The purpose of the law was to show us that we are sinful, that we're filthy, like a mirror to our souls. That's the point of the law. Do you know how you know that you're exceeding the speed limit? When you look down at your speedometer and it says 45 and that sign says 25. If that sign weren't there, how would you know? And that's what the law does. It lets you know. You were sinning the moment you jumped over 25 miles an hour. But that sign is the one that told you. And that's what the law does. It's a mirror to our souls, but mirrors, as you know, cannot clean you. Christ alone makes us clean, and it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to obey. And the fourth and final problem is that trusting the law to save us makes a mockery of Christ. Religion and law-keeping is man's attempt to reach up to God. Christianity says that God reached down to us. Religion says do. Christianity and Christ says done. Tetelestai. It is finished. And when we trust religion to save us, we say to Jesus, you could have stayed home. We got it. The shadows and the pictures, that'll do. It's enough. But they're not enough, are they? So I've never been to the Grand Canyon. But, of course, I hear that it's amazing. I also hear that you get enough of what you get in about 10 seconds, but I'd still like to experience it. Those who have been to the Grand Canyon say similar things. It just doesn't seem real. Pictures just don't do it justice. There's all kinds of creations throughout this world that people say similar things of. Because you see, the more beautiful something is, the harder it is for man to capture and replicate. The more beautiful something is, the smaller we recognize we are and the bigger we realize God is. And is there anything more beautiful, anything more grand than Christ? We have been made for what is real, my friends, and we long for it. There's an ache within us 
for something that is real because we have been made for it. And the pictures and the shadows will never compare to the real thing. And laws, observances, and religious activities are shadows. But Jesus is the reality. He is the substance. And everything about this life is a shadow of what God has given us and prepared for us. And in this life, we are given glimpses, many of which live in our traditions and our observances. But one day our faith will be sight. And there will be no need for shadows or pictures or traditions or observances to remind us. On that day and evermore, we will see Jesus in all his fullness, full of grace and truth. So friends, let it be said of us, both now, in the year to come, and on the day that we go home to him, that the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ is also found in you and I. Gracious in our treatment and judgment of one another, and led by our love and knowledge of the truth of God's holy and living word. Let's pray. Father God, in light of your grace and your truth, would you help us to stop trying to earn your love, to earn our salvation. Help us to quit chasing shadows at the expense of knowing you. Help us to trust you, to save and to do what we cannot. Help us to trust your spirit to lead, to convict, to encourage, and to change us and others. Help us to be known more for who we are for than what we are against. Fix our eyes on the cross of Christ and his empty tomb for our identity. Thank you, Father, that in Christ there is no longer any condemnation. Thank you, Father, that in Christ we need not concern ourselves with the judgment of men. Thank you, Father, that in Christ we have all we need for life and godliness. Jesus, would you show yourself to be real in our lives this day and in the year to come? We ask in your precious name. Amen.